Welcome to Professionally Challenged, war stories from leaders driving change in law firms. Your hosts are Rob Patterson of Parkins Lane Consulting Group and Paul Evans of Toro Digital. Hi there. Today's guest is Amy Burton Bradley, the Consulting Director at Julian Midwinter. Amy has over 15 years of experience in writing bids and tenders for professional services firms. Her previous experience was working as an in-house marketing and BD professional at Middleton's, which is now K&L Gates, Cowley Hearn Lawyers, and engineering firm Sinclair Knight Mertz, which is now Jacobs. She has prepared over 350 successful bids and tenders in the public sector at Commonwealth, state and local levels, including the government and statutory authorities, and also to insurance companies, banks, financial service businesses, the health sector, mining, property and non-for-profits. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you very much, Paul. It's great to be here. Great. So, today we're obviously going to be talking a lot about bids and tenders, but um, Specifically, we thought we'd focus on the process of submitting a bid. Mm-hmm. And the first step, I guess, in submitting a bid is obviously assessing whether you should actually commit the time and resources to submit it in the first place. Now, your success <laughs> rate of leading bids is a whopping 73% over the past 10 years, which is enormous. <laughs> <laughs> um, and not to take anything away from that result, but you must have an eye for uh, spotting a genuine opportunity for a firm to be successful in that process. So perhaps uh, could you tell the listeners what you're looking for when consulting to a client and providing them with your insights on whether they should pitch or not? Thanks, Paul. Um, yeah, look, I spend about half my time actually talking firms out of pursuing bids that are not a good fit for them, yep. which is probably why our win rate and my win rate is on the higher end um, because, yeah, you do get, I guess, an instinct. It's partly scientific, partly art, but you do mm-hmm. get an instinct for ones that are not going to be in the firm's interest to pursue. And for a variety of reasons, sometimes they may still want to proceed. Um, and of course, we can help them. Yep. Um, but yes, I think understanding whether or not you should be bidding um, is the critical first step um, to success because um, apart from all the direct and indirect costs, it's really disheartening for BD teams and mm. to keep working on bids that you, you know, in hindsight, it becomes obvious you had no chance of winning. Yeah. Um, so, we actually have a very handy 20-question checklist um, mm-hmm. available in um, on the resources section of our website that gives you, I guess, 20 factors to consider. Not all of them are always relevant, um, but I think my number one criterion for whether or not a firm should bid is, do you have any existing relationships with your prospective client that you're responding to the tender for? Um, because at the end of the day, law really is a relationships business. And if they don't know you from a bar of soap, it's going to be very hard to get up. Yeah, yeah. you're talking Rob's language there. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's number that's... one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What I was going to say, I'm really pleased you raised that as number one because it's mm. sort of, in my mind, absolutely number one too. I, I, you know, I often give an example to people of a, a tender that I was helping a firm prepare for a, a bank panel. Mm. And as part of that, we actually spent the 18 months leading up to the actual tender getting to know them and developing relationships so that when we did tender or put in the request for proposal, we actually had a, a, a bit of a chance as opposed to sitting in, as you say, cold with no relationships. It was just never going to get up. And that's the perfect strategy, Rob. Um, You know, and it's kind of a long game that you need to play um, because most big institutional type clients will have an existing um, panel of providers that they've worked with for many years. So it's very hard to unseat incumbents if they're providing a fairly decent um, satisfactory level of service to the client you want to go after. So, yeah, it's... The day the bid comes out isn't the day to start work on it, if I could put it that way. Um, but you do get a lot of reactivity in law firms where something comes in the door or they get tapped on the shoulder and it's drop everything, let's rally round. 
and you know a lot of good teamwork can happen under pressure um but yeah again it's one of those ones in hindsight sometimes it becomes very obvious that you were never in with a real chance because you didn't really understand all the environmental factors going on or the existing providers that that client was working with um so a couple of the other critical ones i like to factors i like to think about whether or not a firm should bid um, include whether or not it aligns to your firm's strategy and your core business. Um, I find a lot of lawyers say, oh, yeah, you know, I could do a will for you. And <laughs> it doesn't mean, you know, no one's saying that they couldn't put their mind to it and do that. Um, but again, is it work you are actually good at doing on a repeat basis and are impressive to a prospective client? Because if it's a little bit outside your area, I really wouldn't bother. Yeah. Um, so, Amy, you, you do a lot of government tenders. Do you often, or have you, no doubt, you've encountered firms, they look at a federal, you know, a whole, whole of government or a state government tender and go, oh, there's so much work, we've just got to do it. Uh, yeah, there is an element there of maybe chest beating or, yeah, there's um, a certain prestige, I think, to having government clients, although... Um, I know some firms struggle with the fees you can command with government mm -hmm. in that it's not as good a yield or as profitable perhaps as some other uh, types of work that's available to the firm. But I think government are a good client because, you know, there's almost never any write-offs um, and, yeah, there is a certain prestige or cachet mm -hmm. associated with it. Um, and one small example of a government tender from a few years back, and this would be yep. 2012, I think, from memory, publicly open tender, advertised all over the tender alert services. Uh, every man and his dog in Sydney went after it and I think wider in New South Wales. And it was a very complex bid to put together. They wanted a lot of case studies and scenarios that you had to respond to and different pricing. Um, and then it turned out, I think their external legal spend was about $500,000 a year, which is not nothing, but they had something like over a hundred bids um, <laughs> to wade through. And it was one of those ones where I think they became overwhelmed once um, everything had been submitted and had so many to review. The decision and announcement about who'd been appointed was delayed for months and months. And then when it was announced, they'd reverted back to their existing provider firms. Yeah. <laughs> so again, that was one where they had a lot of um, conveyancing work and things like oh, that, yeah, very yeah. routine legal work that just about every firm in Sydney could say, yeah, we do a bit of property, we do yeah. a bit of litigation. Um, but in hindsight, again, probably didn't have very good chances and then the client being overwhelmed decided to do something different internally <laughs> so which was to stick with what they already had mm. um, yeah. makes sense to me. Um, in terms of strategic alignment do you look at things like these uh, as in sort of corporate yeah, social the, responsibility the, the, and stuff like that yeah yeah whether the firm's fees um, are aligned to the to the company that, or company or, or government body that they're tendering to? Yep. And I think um, traditionally, for example, um, particularly in Sydney, Melbourne, there's been um, certain firms that will work with certain churches, Christian churches, um, and we're known as, for example, you know, the Catholic church law firm or they do a lot of work for the Salvation Army. Um, so, yeah, definitely at that level you get um, firms looking to align with clients where they um, share values. But I think more broadly as well, in about the last five years, I've really noticed it ramping up. You are being asked to provide evidence much more of things around social and sustainable procurement, um, which is a way for some of the bigger um, consumers of legal services like your government. Qantas is another one I can think of that has um, a lot of requirements around this stuff and it's all about making their supply chain live up and embody the values and do all the proper processes that their own clients or customers are expecting. Yeah. Qantas bid I did a couple of years back um, and I think it was standard 
procurement verbiage, but uh, we had to provide details of our animal welfare policy, <laughs> which, you wow. know, if you, if you were a caterer <laughs> or, you know, an animal transport provider or something, I could see that would be highly relevant to your ability to provide Qantas with appropriate services less appropriate for a law firm. Um, so we, we had to fudge that one a little bit. Um, but, you know, you don't want to be disrespectful to the client either. They, it's clearly important to them. Yes. And I think the client always defines what's important and valuable. Yeah. So how can BD professionals communicate those kind of criteria to partners and firms at large, especially if the partners don't necessarily agree? <laughs> yeah, and look, it can be tough. And I think I'd say at the outset, you've kind of got to know if you're a BD person, which battles to pick. Yep. <laughs> um, so there are some that you're going to have to participate in and help prepare that you may personally think is, you know, not a great idea for the firm yep. for whatever reason. Um, but I am big on consistent process. Um, so having a process and applying that consistently. And I would say one go through some type of qualification, whether it's a bid or no bid checklist, like the one I was talking about earlier. And then if you are going to bid, get everyone, whether it's a video conference or around the table within the first 48 hours of the documents coming out, Mm. make everyone read it prior to meeting up and have a 30-minute minimum kickoff session where you can collectively capture any intel um, about the client, about who they're using now, um, and also cover off, you know, responsibilities and accountabilities for developing sections of the bid. And then yep. so covering off practical things, you know, for example, if the main partner is going to be away overseas for part of it, things like mm. that. Um, and Just logistics. Logistics. Mm. And then that way from the outset, you've eyeballed everyone um, in the room and hopefully got agreement um, and I think the good thing about doing that, if it's captured somewhere, the reasoning behind proceeding with the bid, if there's an area where you're bidding all the time and not being successful, you start to get together um, a bank of kind of evidence about these are the things we've been thinking and testing yep. by putting in bids and we keep failing. And because the back end of that would be to, um, and I think we'll talk about this later a bit more, but to obtain a debrief yep. about why you're unsuccessful with the um, entity calling for tenders to f- go back into your kind of intelligence gathering around these exercises because they always take longer than people think. Um, there's a lot of costs involved and it would be maybe better if we decided to spend our time and money and effort on something else. Um, so I think by having a consistent process, you know, big or small bid, Everyone gets used to the idea that we run through this stuff as a matter of course and maybe sometimes the decision is we don't proceed with a bid Um, because we always say, you know, the first rule of good business development is learning when to say no. Mm -hmm. There's so many things competing for people's time and attention, you know, come to this conference, sponsor this thing, um, put in a pitch for this Mm. and it's not qualified properly Um, or, you know, there's maybe a lack of understanding around what, the value of the work on offer actually is. Like I said, it turned out with that example, their legal spend was a relatively paltry half a million between, you know, 15 existing firms. So it wasn't nothing, um, but it's not the, you know, rivers of gold revenue stream that perhaps people may think it might be. Yeah, that makes sense. If if you were to say no, how, um, how would you suggest the firm respond to that business? Yeah, so if it's if they've been, you know, specially invited, and I've got to say it does really happen if it's a case where it's not just one they found, you know, in the gazetted section of the paper, mm-hmm. if they have been specially invited, you know, it's very flattering. Um, and I find sometimes where their reticence is is because that prospective client has pigeonholed their law firm as being an expert in X and Y and it turns out it's not really a good fit for them. Um, so sometimes they will still want to do a bid, but they'll do it in a pretty minimal kind of way because politically they feel that the client's expecting them to have a go. And then they'll start saying things like, oh, we should put our hat in the ring and you never know. Da, 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 da. But again, I, getting back to saying no is smart. I think the brave and more clever thing to do there would be to respectfully and politely decline to bid, maybe in writing or 
better through a phone conversation and walk the client through why, um, you know, it's about educating the client. You know, you may perceive that we actually do this, we, we don't. It would be a stretch for our team and we do really good work in this area, but we don't do it in area X, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, I think often by the time I'm involved, the firms have already qualified in a bid rather than yep. out. So, yep. But a lot of them are frightened of actually having that conversation with their clients and never want to say what they don't know. So they'll put in something even if it's not quite right. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, I mean, I think people have built practice areas off the back of those sorts of yep. situations. Yep. So there's always those exceptions to the rule as well where they might do a very speculative bid and, you know, against all odds pull it off um, and it becomes a core service offering of the firm but that's very rare I think. Well I think we've covered off on determining whether you should do the bid and um, some of the planning process. We might have a look now at the actual bid Um, Mm -hmm. and I think there's three areas here that I want to cover that I think will be interesting to our listeners and that was the executive summary, the value add section and obviously the pricing. So we might start with the executive summary. What what do you think makes an effective executive summary? Yeah, look, there's lots of um, good info on executive summaries out there um, in lots of books about proposals and um, on the web. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of executive summaries are really boring. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I think, yeah, a better understanding of what an executive summary should be doing for you in a tender or a proposal or a bid um, would you know, greatly assist um, firms when they're presenting this stuff um, because a lot of them will open with, you know, thank you for this opportunity to be to do, 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 do. <laughs> And I've heard various things. Um, I went to a procurement um, workshop earlier this year and he, the procurement uh, guy running it, said he likes those letters. He okay. thinks it adds a personal touch. Um, so I think it, it's very much a client-by-client um, kind of case-by-case basis as to whether you would go to the trouble trouble of a covering letter type thing. But, yeah, I think understanding that your proposal or tender, it's not meant to be a detailed report. It is, you know, it's it's a, not exactly a capability document, although you are demonstrating capability. It's really about selling. Yep. And the executive summary, it doesn't need to recite every element of your bid, what you're trying to do there is in a really snappy, lively one to two pages maximum (laughs) um, way is sell your firm and position you as the best choice. So I think you want to try and um, operate and engage your reader on more of an imaginary, imaginative, like higher level. Um, So we like to say that every prospective client you are going to be communicating to will have probably four questions and the questions are something like, you know, one, is this the right solution? Two, can they really do it? Three, is it a fair price? And four, if we proceed, will it deliver a good return on our investment? Hmm. So in your executive summary, you kind of want to address those four questions and provide back to the client, almost paraphrase in a nice, clear way, restate their needs, spoken and unspoken needs. Um, So it often depends how well you know the client. Again, do you have a relationship there and you've got some insight into what's driving um, the refresh of the panel or the request um, for tenders? But yeah, I think the more specific and more relevant you make your restatement of their needs, um, the more useful it will be because the decision maker is going to have reduced anxiety about wasting, you know, time, money or, you know, risking the reputation by a choice of your firm. Um, And then you can also in your executive summary, again, at a higher level, talk about what it's going to be like to be a client of yours. And when I do that, I like to flip around the sentences. So instead of saying something like, you know, law firm X will do for you, you might say client A will benefit in these yep. important ways from our law firm. So just, again, little tweaks that can make your language more client-centric. Mm. You know, how many times do you say the client's name, not your firm's name? We, 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 yeah. We, we, we. Um, and then um, at the very end of your one or two-page exec summary, you want a snappy couple of strong sentences 
that really are about why choose us, um, you know, give them a reason to proceed with your firm or your particular solution um, and that can help make Sounds your summary more good. compelling. Yep. <laughs> yep. I really like that. It's um, yeah. having been on, been at the other end where as a CRO you're being pitched to, one of the things that used to drive me crazy was when someone would pitch to you and, and not restate or or um, provide an example of how they understand what you're trying yeah. to do and just then go straight into their never-ending list of services and benefits. Yep. Um, so I think that's really important. I, yeah, as someone who's purchased legal services and purchased other things, I think that's critical. That's it. And the more context and specific you can be, the more it's going to resonate and your firm will look like you were born to do their work yeah. because they'll be nodding their head every sentence thinking, oh, these people really get us. They're, you know, well-priced. We'd be crazy not to use them. Yep. Um, so. Awesome. Mm. All right, value adds. So how, how important are value adds to decision makers? Um, look, I think they are very important um, and they're clearly expected now. Um, they're not such a novelty as they were maybe 20 years ago. Yep. Um, and I think, as we might have touched on earlier, we should always remember that each client will define what they think is valuable. So that's something to bear in mind if you've got a standard list that you wheel out for every bid. Yep. You may want to take <laughs> that or come up with a couple of new ones. Um, so the other thing we've noticed probably in the last five years is the client in the RFT doc will say, these are the standard value adds, so CPD seminars, newsletters, yep. um, da 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 What is it your firm will do above and beyond that? <laughs> they're they're sick of being us? off of the same stuff. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's kind of like that's a given. We expect we're going to get like four seminars a year that are tailored to our, you know, we'll get a certain amount of precedent development, things like that. But what is it you could offer us? Um, and often those um, questions might also ask specifically about any particular technologies we have yep. or any innovation proposals we can offer. So that um, those sort of aspects of adding value appear almost standard now in many um, RFT documents. Um, and I think with value adds, it's a really easy way to stand out. If you're an incumbent provider, you know, I've worked with different firms who shall remain nameless over the years, um, but they'll shrug and say, oh, well, you know, since we last bid four years ago, you know, they never availed any of the value add we offered. So, no, we haven't really done any in the last couple of years, <laughs> which I think you just need to be 5 or 10% better than the next firm yeah. and just, yeah. you know, get in their face and start insisting on we're going to do a quarterly meeting, we're going to do a quarterly seminar, we're going to develop a, I don't know, a custom checklist for you, whatever it is because those things are always good to bring up in bids when you're trying to get reappointed as well. Here's yep. all this lovely, you know, hundreds of hours value add we've done and a really easy way to do it is when the client rings up for some ad hoc phone advice, have a time recording code set up so you can, across your team, trap, um, you know, how many minutes, how many hours of no charge advice mm. um, you've been providing each month or each year because uh, that can be quite powerful to say back to them, you know, we've provided over 100 hours of no charge advice, which is, you know, upskilled and enabled your team to do more internally. Yep. Um, and Very so good. on. Yeah, I like that. Um, in terms of value adds, one that always seems to be thrown out there, but it can be hellishly expensive is things like client portals and, and sort of those sort of integrations, is there a lot of that still going on? I think I would say from what I see um, through the RFT exercises, because um, say if your firm does a lot of work with financial services and insurance um, mm. companies, they all have vastly different um, internal setups. So your own kind of reporting tool or technology data capture portal thing, it just needs to be flexible enough so it can talk to that particular client system. Because yep. um, I think we used to see in bids maybe 10 years ago or more, they'd ask, what technology do you specifically use? Thinking, oh, maybe we can just, you know, get whatever that law firm's using and make all of our panel firms use it. So yep. I think mm. it's more about having something that's flexible across a lot of clients um, and that's easy to adapt and can generate custom reports and 
that sort of um, a thing rather than any specific client portal. Um, I know some firms have gotten rid of them off their websites now. Um, yeah. It really depends what it is. If it's just a sort of SharePoint type thing with data security, I don't know if you'd want to have sort of sensitive documents there. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think all of that stuff, automation, all of those things, um, it's gradual and it's improving all the time. But, yeah, I think my number one tip is just have some kind of practice management or whatever your data capture is, something that is flexible to talk to different clients because they all have slightly different um, reporting formats and other requirements. Cool. Mm-hmm. So, um, pricing um, is the last one and that's obviously very important uh, to prospective yes. buyers. But um, <laughs> I, feel, and I feel like this topic alone could probably be a... <laughs> Podcast episode it in itself, um, but um, and there's so much literature and thinking about the death of hourly billing. Um, mm. Rob and I just came back from a conference in Singapore. This is brought up a number of times. But besides fixed fees for very discrete and specific services, so for example, like a debt recovery letter or conveyancing on a lot in a development project, something that is like quite repeatable and pretty easy to predict how much it's going to cost each time. Um, I imagine it's pretty hard for decision makers to actually compare kind of apples with apples if the firm doesn't offer hourly billing as an option. Is that, do you think that's a fair comment? Yeah, look, I do. And I think it's sort of sad, but um, a lot of the times, particularly if um, the RFT has really been prepared by procurement rather than, mm. say, um, in-house counsel, or the legal department internally, they're not really good at understanding or scoping um, legal work. Mm. So often firms, there'll be requests for things like alternative fee and billing arrangements, but the scope will be crazy and the law firm will balk at it and say, oh, well, we, you know, um, and there's nowhere to qualify um, the parameters around what's in and out of scope and things like that. So the other thing I've noticed as well is we will prepare, you know, 12 pages of beautiful alternative fee options. And my feedback from some of the clients I've worked with is nine times out of 10, the end client is so overwhelmed, they end up reverting back to hourly rates, um, even though they've been offered all these alternatives because it is just too damn hard. And hourly rates are easy to set and administer. It is crude, but they can look at the partner rate and say, our benchmark is, you know, this much now for a partner. Um, And they'll use that to negotiate as well when they're doing best and final offers um, for some of these um, panel selection processes. And they'll say, our benchmark is X an hour. Can you match it? Yeah. Up to the firm if they want to, you know, continue to play ball. Yeah. It's a really hard one. Um, (laughs) Rob, did you have any comment on that? Yeah, it's – I think as um, Amy said, if, you know, for procurement people, yeah, comparing rates is a, is a really easy methodology. I suppose, um, Amy, you work on – did Julian Midwinter actually help some firms create um, RFP documents as well? Um, we haven't done it for a while, um, but we've definitely done a couple of insurance companies and also a couple of local government entities yeah, um, to create RFPs. Yeah. Yeah, if I think often if the, the the tender, the company that's tendering, if they have someone that's really quite competent, competently prepared, then they're they're comfortable enough to you know, look after fixed fees or alternate fee arrangements. But in the absence of that, I think they struggle to, um, as Amy said, to scope things. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that sort of comes in sort of further down in the relationship as well, rather than? At that RFP pros, like at that point in time? If it's a young relationship, Mm -hmm. I think um, those sorts of um, fixed fee arrangements can be um, difficult because you haven't really established a working dynamic. And then if there's too many exceptions um, because they haven't categorised matters properly and it's like, oh, God, they're all turning out to be complex, but we said we'd do them all for a flat fee of five grand and we're losing money hand over fist and none of the lawyers want to do the work because it's not remunerative. 
all of that stuff comes into play. So I think the quirkier, uh, more complex fixed fees definitely work best in the context of an established client relationship. And then um, as Rob was kind of getting at, the sophistication mm. of the end users there. So um, I helped uh, a firm do a bid to a waste management company and it was like a really well set out tender request because the general counsel had written it and you know there was no yeah, mucking well, around yeah. it was really clear about things like these are the types of value adds that would be valuable to our team uh we also need you to help us with our hr people who are not sophisticated da, 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 da. what can you do for them yep. um and that was really easy to respond to um and then with things not all local government, but a lot of local government are not very sophisticated when it comes to putting together requests um, for legal services. Some of the smaller regional councils, they won't even have an in-house lawyer. Um, So you'll get some sort of crazy um, request documents there and not understanding what they're asking for with prices as well. Um, So I think overall though, if people don't want to just be rated on hourly rates. Um, it's about demonstrating um, head and shoulders above the competition about the value you can add that's in excess of your fees. Yep. So, yeah. Perhaps the, the one exception is, you know, the odd, the odd urban myth about firms that have just said, we want to do all your work and we'll do it for X. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think most clients are probably fairly realistic about um, they can't get everything in a one-stop shop. Yeah. So it's sort of ex- horses for courses, you know. I always think, do you want to take your panel beater to the uh, your car to the panel beater that specialises in all makes and models or if you've got a Mercedes, you take it to the guy that just does Mercs, you know. Yeah. Yep. So it just depends yep. as well. I remember working on a few tenders um, just after the GFC, so it was roughly about 10 years ago and this idea of procurement being far more involved in a general counsel or an in-house team's decision-making process was really gaining momentum. Um, That doesn't seem to have stopped from my perspective, but um, what are your thoughts on that, Amy? Yes. Um, Look, I think, um, and again, I went to that procurement workshop earlier this year uh, with a chap called Jonathan Dutton. Um, He's a procurement Uh, consultant. Uh, But yeah, I think uh, what's changed in the last decade is procurement has become much more professional um, and better at procuring things that are complex intangibles like legal services. Um, The other thing they've got more access to with the improvements in technology, uh, they've got much better data collection these days and tools to help them assess. So yes, they do things like headline partner rates. Um, I think the other thing um, that firms should be aware of is that the procurement process in bigger organisations, that will often start 18 months before the RFT even comes out. Um, And procurement will go around and interview all of their business unit leaders or all the different teams and ask them, you know, which firms do you rate? Who's performing well? Who's performing badly? Um, So very often, if they've got a lot of providers and they're looking to maybe reduce the panel and gain some efficiencies and then hopefully finagle a volume discount out of their remaining firms in return for more work, Mm. they may even have in mind that they're going to get rid of certain firms before the documents are even released and really putting in a bid as a formality. It's a way to break up with a long-term provider. Mm -hmm. Um, So that can happen. Um, with procurement getting involved um, early and kind of driving it. So, yes. Yeah, <laughs> gotcha. Um, okay, so we've kind of covered the or the planning or the criteria of the planning, what to include and how, I guess, corporates make decisions. Let's um, talk about what happens if you win. <laughs> so. Yes. Um, <laughs> In your latest report on bid trends, you note that winning the bid is often just the start of the process in Mm -hmm. that it gets you on the panel. You then often need to win the work for each file. Obviously, to ensure building relationships with the decision makers is important, but in highly governed organisations such as government and publicly listed companies, how can lawyers build that relationship, um, especially if things like outside of work, such as hospitality or gifts or even just a simple coffee can be out of the question? 
Yeah, look, it is a tough one. And I think if you've been lucky enough to get, say, an appointment um, to a large government panel, like a whole of government um, legal panel, mm-hmm. and you're the new kid on the block, it can be really tricky. So, for example, a lot of firms have been appointed or reappointed to the Australian government um, whole of government panel. Um, and if you don't have an office in Canberra and you don't really have a lot of existing relationships, it's really difficult to know where to start. So I think I would, and again, this goes back to clients, uh, lawyers can sometimes be frightened of asking their clients questions, but um, I would say at the outset, if you get a debrief um, after your successful bid or they run a kickoff session, which they'll often do when it's a new panel, I would ask, you know, what are some appropriate ways we can get to know you better And, you know, I think those sort of boozy lunches, fishing trips, all that 80s style stuff. um, (laughs) Look, And I know some people still do golf days, but honestly, I think a lot of younger people don't play golf anymore and no one's got a full day um, to hang out on a golf course. If you do, you know, good luck to you. Um, But that was sort of the old style. So some things probably have changed for the better. But um, again, getting back to value-added stuff, I would start the value-add flow straight away and in that kickoff meeting, um, let's schedule in a seminar. So that way you're delivering them a value-add, you're educating the client, you can bring a few people, you get to know each other's teams that way. Um, So I think things like that that are through the value-add program um, are highly appropriate um, and won't transgress um, any of those kind of requirements. And I think even government, they're okay with things like, you know, end of year Christmas parties, as long as it's reasonable um, and, it, you know, it's not suspect in any way. Um, and I think, yeah, if, if, you, if you're giving them a value add, it's giving them a business reason to meet and interact with you, not just a lame, oh, I yep. want to get to know your business or your government yep. department, yep. Um, with something of interest and value um, to that meeting. Um, and then look, the other thing you can do if it's something like government, um, a bit of LinkedIn stalking to see maybe if any of your existing clients can introduce you to someone you might have identified in a department um, because referrals from a mutual or a shared contact um, sort of come with those nice, uh, you know, good hallmarks around them. Um, and then the other thing that's also quite good, if you're really stuck and you want to find out who the contacts are, law society websites. Um, so often you can filter for organisation. Um, so that might be government department and that should give you a list of all the lawyers with practising certificates in government. Right. Um, yeah. So that's a, that's I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, no, you can do it. So it um, doesn't always work and not everyone who's going to be instructing your firm in legal work will actually be a lawyer, of course, but mm-hmm. often you will be dealing lawyer to lawyer. Yep. Um, so those can be some avenues, LinkedIn or the Law Society websites can be um, good tools to maybe get a hit list together and then again, ask your client, what are some appropriate ways we can get to know you better? What would you value? Because um, it might not be what you think. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Um, <laughs> if, if, if you do win a tender, do you still do like a debrief or an after action review internally? I think you should. And we actually have a internal team debrief resource on our website because that's the back part of the process. Even before perhaps win or lose, we know the outcome from that client. It can be good once the bid's submitted to do an internal debrief, what needs attention, what worked well, what didn't work so well for us this time, what could we have done better. Um, there's, it's sort of those questions are good for any type of project. Um, up. Yeah. The other thing that I've seen done well and done badly is even things like saving templates, if you create something that's really valuable or, you know, can be used again, just making sure that you've got it somewhere handy. Mm. Um, um, so, yeah, next, the next tender you can you don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time. That's it. And I think some of that, it doesn't necessarily have to be a fancy piece of software. I've seen firms create, I think what you're talking about, Rob, is some kind of content repository, a bid library, proposal library, something yes. like that. Spot on. And that's the thing. I've seen people use um, Outlook. They set up a public folder and they file it by 
um, the name of the bid. Um, I've seen people have standard kind of responses around things like pro bono. They're in a spreadsheet, so you can yep. look it up and filter for keywords. As long as you've got a system and it's religiously updated so you know you don't end up annoying the partners you're working with by saying, here's your CV, and they say, no, 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 this is an old one. Because yes. um, that's part of the trouble is capturing it and then remembering what you've got and then being able to put your hands on it quickly. Yeah. Mm. Um, but over time, um, firms can build up good repositories, which is in fact best practice. I did have a client once who wanted every bid written from scratch, um, which put an incredible <laughs> amount of pressure on his team yeah. and us um, and didn't make the bids any better. Yeah. Um, so we actually have a blog um, on our website called Same, Same, But Different. And that's all about best practice ways to reuse boilerplate existing content and how to tailor it this time for this client. Um, So it's okay to use the same thing, just make it different for this client. (laughs) Makes lots of sense. Um, On on that, um, one of the trends that you identified in that report, if... um, you lost was that um, businesses and government are often now refusing to provide tender debriefs um, yes. to the to those who put in a RFP or mm. RFT. Um, what do you suggest firms do if they face that sort of situation? Like, yeah, look, it's tough, um, and I think government are usually a bit more cooperative, but it may even be that they just send you a short email, so they won't even get on the phone with you, which can be disappointing, particularly if it's been a very complex bid to put together and a lot of blood, sweat and tears has gone into it. So my tip there is to keep politely requesting, um, but there'll be a point where it starts to become harassment (laughs) and they're just not going to do it. So I think that is terribly unfair and it also tends to suggest there's like a real lack of process at their end and I think that example I keep referring to, they didn't put any parameters in, they just did it as one full tender process. They might have done a two-stage process where they did an expression of interest or something first and then they could shortlist 15 firms and say, you guys are now invited to a full tender. But a lot of organisations are not that sophisticated. They don't think to do something like that. And then, yeah, they get an outcome where they have over 100 bids to assess, um, which you can see why they just don't have the internal resource to provide debriefs. So the other thing you can do there, and again, if you have a relationship somewhere in the client organisation, is try to find out off the record um, what went wrong, what the perception of the firm was. Um, you know, and it can also be helpful to chat to some of your colleagues in other firms if you're friendly with some other lawyers whose firm may have been successful um, and maybe take some of that, you know, scuttlebutt with a grain of salt. Um, but that can help you understand what happened. I think the other thing that's tricky with debriefs is you get a sanitised um, type of feedback if you can get one sometimes and they'll just say something like, oh, it was your pricing. And it's not really your pricing, yeah. but that's a shorthand, get you off the phone, yeah. say, you know, you missed out, we don't want to go into the reasons, yeah. rather than saying, oh, you know, we really don't like the guy that's your lead partner. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> almost a nice way of saying... Want to break no, up thanks. with your yeah. firm and make it through. So, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely... The one you can control is having your own internal debrief. Yep. Um, so, again, once you start doing a few of those exercises as well and if you keep your bid qualification from your kickoff, you can start to see patterns and say, look, John's always saying we should bid for this and we've done three in the last 12 months at a cost of whatever. If you keep a timesheet internally so you can trap yeah. the marketing and BD hours that go into these, um, maybe we should really think hard before we put our hat in the ring for another one of these types of bids. So it's all about having data and evidence. Lawyers are big on evidence. So that is um, a good tip. Keep some records around the costs um, and the decision-making process so you know for next time. Final question, and that was is more of a philosophical question. Mm. Oh, <laughs> you know my style. Um, <laughs> The, the formal tendering process has sort of always been the domain of government and publicly listed companies that have to obviously, I guess, employ strict governance protocols. Mm-hmm. Do, do you see this process of um, providing an RFP or a requesting 
a tender. Do you see this process being adopted more so by the private sector in the future? Yeah, look, I think so. And I think, um, as I alluded to before, I think in the last decade, particularly procurement has become more professionalised when it comes to um, professional services, particularly legal. Um, There's some interesting research being um, done around all this stuff as well. Um, And I think, as we touched on before, it's not only a way they perceive that they can save money and push for better value from their providers, um, but they want to use their buying power for good. So again, it's that rise of the social or sustainable procurement. They want to drive positive behaviour change within their supply chain. Um, And it's things that their own end clients or customers are expecting that government department or business to do. Um, And government usually has an agenda they want to progress. Um, So by mandating it as part of, you know, the procurement um, process and a competitive selection, um, it's a really clear, easy way for them to drive that um, behaviour. So, yes, I think private sector, government, all of it, procurement's definitely here to stay. Um, And, you know, if your firm depends on work from those types of clients, um, you need to get good at tendering uh, because your revenue is going to be up for grabs every two to three years. Um, So, yeah, you need to, yeah, get good at it. Makes sense. Mm. All right. (laughs) Roberto, do you want to run the lightning round? Certainly do. Okay. <laughs> okay, Amy, it's part of our lightning round. We just ask you a few questions so the listeners get to know you a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So the first question is, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Uh, yeah, now this is a lady I used to work with, Libby Maynard. Shout out to her. Um, and it's it's so obvious, but she once said to me, that if you want to affect positive change um, in a firm or any organisation, you've got to resource it in some way. Um, and if you don't resource it, it ain't going to happen, which again, it's totally obvious, um, but people will make plans for things. And, you know, whether that might be hiring someone, freeing up someone's time, um, spending money, getting a bit of software, whatever it is, if you don't resource what you want to have happen, it won't happen. So, um, yeah, I think it's always stuck with me. (laughs) Really good business advice. I think my team would love to share that one with me. Mm. (laughs) We need more resources. (laughs) I mean, everyone, you know, we're all being expected to do more with less. But, yeah, it's, it's totally obvious. But, yeah. Because um, hope is not really a proper a strategy. Plan. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very poor plan, and particularly in, in the area that we just spoke about with tendering. I think often there's an under under appreciation of just the level of resources you do need to bring to bear to be successful. Mm. Look, it's a bit like um, with your work, Paul, um, website redevelopment or new websites. They yep. always take longer than you think. Yep. Um, no matter what, yeah, yeah. even with the best plans. And use Toro, of course. And of course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's it. Okay. Um, number two, what was your first ever job? Uh, yes, my first ever job was as a checkout chick at Kmart. Um, so <laughs> that was my after-school job uh, for right. a few years. Fond so, memories? Uh, it was good staff discount. Yep. So, you know, back when CDs oh, were yeah, $30 a pop yep. when you had to buy music that way, yep. Um, yep. yes, heavily relied on the staff discounts. So, yeah, it was a good experience. <laughs> All right. If someone knew you really well, what is the one thing that they would know about you that others may not? Um, it's no surprise to my friends, but I'm actually uh, really into military history. Um, so a bit of a World War Two tragic, um, but yeah, I, I find that area really, really interesting. So um, I read on that constantly, and I've actually got a history degree. Um, oh, right. That was my undergrad degree. So yeah, so that's been an abiding passion. Oh, well, um, I was in the I was in the Somme recently, and ah. really struck me. I I hadn't known a lot about that part of the First World War and it was, yeah, it was quite amazing. Yeah, well, that's the infamous one. Yeah. Yes. Um, Can you nominate another industry leader that you hold great respect for that you think we should um, interview as part of our podcast? 
Um, I would say, and Paul knows who I'm talking about. I don't know if you've met him, Rob, but um, Alastair Marshall, who used to work with us at JMA, but he's now back out consulting on his own. Um, he um, has a really interesting sales background mm-hmm. and being from the UK, did a lot of work with law firms and barristers over there. So I think he'd be worth getting on. Um, so, yeah. yeah Hatch good. tip to Alistair. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, if you could lead any company in the world other than Julian Midwinter and Associates, which would it be? Um, I really like Atlassian, who were the sort of, uh, you know, famous Aussie duo that um, are all about better ways of uh, working, working smarter, more collaboratively. Um, Plus I'd be really rich if if I was heading, like, you know, helming that one. Um, So, you know, uh, but, yeah, I think they're really interesting business um yeah, and i love all that uh those project tools that you can get now so yeah. it's very good yeah one of the things i like, like about atlassian is their values and it's interesting mm. I've, I've seen many people say oh we want the same values and i said yeah but you gotta live them you know <laughs> that's it you need to model the behavior you want to see in others exactly so, right yeah um and finally um and most importantly if our listeners would like to contact you What's the best way to get in touch? Um, probably on LinkedIn. So it's Amy Burton Bradley, uh, hyphenated. <laughs> um, or you can drop me an email um, on my work email address, which is a double b at julianmidwinter.com.au. And always happy to have a chat. Love hearing from people. Um, so, you know, sometimes five minutes on the phone with me can really help <laughs> if they're considering doing a speculative bid. So, awesome. Amy, thank you so much for agreeing to um, the interview today with Paul and I. Um, you know, I think hopefully you know, a lot of people who, who haven't done a lot of bidding before picked up a heap of things today. So that was yep. brilliant. It's fantastic. Yeah, yep. thanks, thanks so much pleasure. for being on the show. Yes, and I know you guys will put all the links in, but we've got a ton of resources on lots of different aspects of putting together tenders, bids and proposals uh, on our website. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, if you have a good look there, you can almost DIY a winning bid. So, Love it. Yes. <laughs> thanks, Amy. Great. Thanks, right. Amy. Thanks for having me, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Professionally Challenged. Visit our website at www.professionallychallenged.com and please leave us a review on iTunes. Until next time, bye for now.